1963, following a business deal gone sour, two industrialists from either side of the Atlantic Ocean became embroiled in a rivalry that was played out at the greatest automobile race in the world. In its broad strokes, this book chronicles a clash of two titans, Henry Ford II of America and Enzo Ferrari of Italy at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. The 24 Hours of Le Mans is a sports car race, but in the 1950s and 1960s, it was more than that. It was the most magnificent marketing tool the sports car industry had ever known. Renowned manufacturers built street legal machines that would prove on the racetrack that their cars were the best in the world. A win translated into millions in sales. It was a contest of technology and engineering, of ideas and audacity. Success could only be achieved by the marriage of brilliant design and steel-wheeled courage. It would require a greasy-fingered visionary to run the show, a team of the most skilled drivers in the world, and the swiftest racing sports car ever to hurdle down a road. All things of which, the optimistic Americans believed, could be purchased with the almighty dollar. Okay, so that's an excerpt from the book that I read this week and the one I'm going to talk to you about today, which is Go Like Hell, Ford, Ferrari, and Their Battle for Speed and Glory at Le Mans, and it was written by A.J. Bame. So I've been wanting to read this book for several months, and I decided to wait because there's a high-budget movie that's coming out next week uh, starring Matt Damon and, and Christian Bale, among others, about the story that's in the book. Uh, the, the name of that movie is Ford vs. Ferrari. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to use this book as the start of a two-part series that I want to do on Enzo Ferrari. So the parts that I picked out of the book the one I, that I want to talk to you about today has to do with like what can we learn from the founder of Ferrari and his unique personality and the way he goes about things. And then next week, I'm going to go into what may be the longest book that I've ever read for the podcast. Uh, it's, I have the hard cover. It's a biography of Enzo Ferrari. It's like 980-something pages. Maybe, maybe the, the, when I read all of Warren Buffett's shareholder letters, that was probably a little longer. Uh, but it's going to be, we're going to go into, I'm going to go into much more detail next week. But this book is a great way to introduce us to who Enzo Ferrari was and to how he thought about building his business. So where I want to start is, what we're going to see, so like I said before, I'm going to focus mainly on Enzo Ferrari. But if you happen to read this book, you're going to realize that there's a, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's really comparing and contrasting the difference between a founder and a manager. So you have Henry Ford II, which is the grandson of Henry Ford, who's you know now taking over a company 60-something years after its founding. Uh, and he's going up against Enzo Ferrari, who has complete control over his small company. So I just want to read this, this section that really highlights um, what's going on. Unlike the men who founded American car companies early in the century, Henry Ford, Ransom Olds, the Dodge Brothers, the auto men of the day didn't have to know how to design an engine. So they're talking about the people running the companies in the 1960s. Uh, they did have to be good at math. And here's a quote from Ford's vice president at the time. He says, this is a nickel and dime business all the way through. A dime on a million units is $100,000. We'd practically cut your throat around here for a quarter. Companies were no longer run by the men whose names were on the cars. Okay, so as of today, I've done three podcasts on Henry Ford. I'll do an, a, at least another one in the future. If you haven't gone back and listened to them, it's Founders number 9, number 26, and number 80. This time period 
is fascinating to me. And I'm eventually going to do podcasts on Ransom Olds and then the Dodge Brothers. I talked a little bit about the Dodge Brothers on a few of the Henry Ford podcasts because they're crazy, interesting people. Um, so I want to compare now the way that Ford, the Ford organization is talking about their products, right? So they're saying, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a nickel and dime business. And we're going to compare and contrast that to the passion that Enzo Ferrari has for the products that he's making. And it is completely different. And here's an example of that. For Enzo Ferrari, the internal combustion engine was a symbol of life. It had revolutionized society. He had watched it all happen during his lifetime. He spoke of automobiles as if they were alive. Cars possess unique behaviors. They breathe through their carburetors. They were skinned with metal. Ferrari's aim, he once told a reporter addressing himself in the third person, is to perfect an ideal, to transform inert raw material into a living machine. The engine of a car was both heart and soul. It's rumble, the heartbeat of the creature. So when I read that section, one, uh, Enzo Ferrari's passion is infectious. Um, he comes across in the book way more, even though he's kind of Machiavellian in nature, like I was way more drawn to him and w- wanting to learn from him than the way Henry Ford II comes across in the book. Um, but what I'm realizing by reading all these books is that we know that, um, that interest compounds, money can compound, uh, time can compound. But knowledge also compounds. And so the more you expose yourself to all these ideas that all these entrepreneurs of the past have, have, have uh, used in their life, you realize that there's broad strokes that are the same, and yet their applications can be infinitely different. So I saw this excerpt the other day, and I want to read to you. It has, it has to do with how nature designs things. Um, and it says, nature is never modular. Nature is full of almost similar units, waves, raindrops, blades of grass, etc., But though the units of one kind are all alike in their broad structure, no two are ever alike in detail. So the author lists two two ideas here. He says, number one, the same broad features keep recurring over and over again. So he's talking about nature. I would say that statement is exactly true if you study all these biographies. The same broad features keep recurring over and over again. Number two, in their detailed, detailed appearance, these broad features are never twice the same. So those two statements could seem like they're conflict, but the application of those ideas, these broad reoccurring themes, lead us to millions and millions of essentially unlimited different variations of how these things, these ideas can be applied in the real world. So let me give you an example of that, uh, what the author is saying here. On one hand, all oak trees have the same overall shape, the same thicked, twisted trunk, the same crinkled bark, the same shape leaves, the same proportion of limbs to branches to twigs. On the other hand, No two trees are quite the same. The exact combination of height and width and curvature never repeats itself. We cannot even find two leaves which are exactly the same. Same thing goes for businesses. So why do I bring that up now? Because what immediately jumps to my mind when I'm sitting here listening and reading about Enzo Ferrari, so I've finished reading this book, I've already started reading his biography, and it it keeps reoccurring. He has a passion for cars at a very and, and and for creating a product that is more akin to like a craftsman than like like a CEO of a large company, and I think there's like a that passion is is infectious and it's also like good marketing. When I hear a founder speak about their product in a way that Enzo speaks about his cars, even though I have no interest in his cars, like you're you're more likely to to be attracted to buy that product. And what it reminds me of is this 
this quote I'm going to play into the microphone right now from Steve Jobs that happened a few years before he died. And he talks about why having passion for what you're doing, the product you're making, the company you're creating, how you're spending your waking hours is so important. So I'm just going to play that to you real quick. It's about 55 seconds. You, you have to have a lot of passion for what you're doing. And it's totally true. And the reason is, uh, is because it's so hard that if you don't, any rational person would give up. It's really hard. And you have to do it over a sustained period of time. So if you don't love it, if you're not having fun doing it, you don't really love it, uh, you're going to give up. And that's what happens to most people, actually. If you really look at, 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 at the ones that uh, ended up you know, being successful, unquote, in the eyes of society and the ones that didn't, oftentimes it, it's the ones that are successful loved what they did so they could persevere when, you know, when it got really tough. And, and the ones that, that didn't love it quit because they're sane. Right? Who would want to put up with this stuff if you don't love it? So it's a lot of hard work, and, and it's a lot of worrying constantly. And uh, um, if you don't love it, you're going to fail. So you've got to love it. You've got to have passion. People say... So the reason that this how this relates is because when he's building his, his company, he's going to have to go, Enzo that is, he has to go through problem after problem after problem. It's not like a straight line up. And I think what caused him to never quit is the fact that like he there was no separation in his life between what he was doing at Ferrari and living. And so I'll, I'll get into that now. So let me go ahead and back jump into the book. So I need to talk. I think the passion of Enzo has something to do with the, the city that he lived in and the one that he would rarely want to leave. And let me just give you a description of the city in, in Italy. It's called Modena. I might be pronouncing that incorrectly. But it says, now speaking about the city, its true fame, however, was its craftsmen. Absurdly gifted artisans abound so that you can have almost anything made, made surprisingly well, and so cheaply that you must never get used to that miracle. As in all Italian cities and towns, the Modenese held beauty in great esteem. In this city, an old old world aesthetic was joined by modernity's defining ambition to harness power. It is my opinion, Ferrari once wrote, that there are innate gifts that are, that, are, that are particular to a certain regions and that transferred into industry, these propensities may at times acquire an exceptional importance. In Modena, where I was born and set up my own works, now listen to the, the sentence he's going to say here, right? In Modena, where I was born and set up my own works, there is a species of psychosis for racing cars. Ferrari's, Ferrari was a metal worker's son. His name came from the Italian word ferro, meaning iron. He would describe himself as neither a designer nor an engineer, but rather an agitator of men. Okay, so let's stop right here and think about what has already happened, right? We have Ford Vice President. We have it's being run by the grandson um, saying, you know, nickel and dime, we're, 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 we're going to cut costs. We're going to keep it as low as possible. And we're going to produce. I mean, that's essentially the Henry Ford wanted to, you know, his quote is that I'm building a, an auto, a, a motor car for the multitudes, right? So he's going to create like the most basic car possible to, to spread it out to most people. Ferrari's doing essentially the same thing. Ford's making cars, Ferrari's making cars. They take two vastly different approaches though. And even the way they, you could see it not only in, like, obviously their philosophy is going to be played out in the products you make, right? But also the way they talk about those products. You know, he's talking about basically having a love affair with this living creature that is the car versus, oh, we're just going to cut costs and, you know, make the, the cheapest piece of crap that, that, um, that, um, that we can possibly produce. 
And what it reminded me of uh, is when I, 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 was, uh, I took notes on this, when Steve Jobs was 29 years old, he gave this long interview because they were releasing the Macintosh. Let me read another quote from him. He says, we didn't build the Mac for anybody else. We built it for ourselves. We were the group of people who were going to judge whether it was great or not. We weren't going to go out and do market research, right? These car companies of, in the 1960s, American car companies are famous for doing that. We just wanted to build the best thing we could build. When you're a carpenter making a beautiful chest of drawers, you're not going to use a piece of plywood on the back, even though it faces the wall, and nobody would ever see it. You will know it's there. So you're going to use a beautiful piece of wood on the back. For you to sleep well at night, the aesthetic, the quality, has to be carried all the way through. So why am I going on and on about this? Because when you hear two people talking, which, think about it from a customer's perspective. Which are you more likely to want to give your money to? The person that, that gives a shit about what they're doing, that's clearly all in, that's extremely passionate about it, or the person saying, hey, we're just trying to make another black Model T, and hopefully we can do it at 10, 10 cents cheaper next year than we did this year. It's just not comparable. Um, all right, so let's go back into... Okay, so now we're going to start to see um, Ferrari's schedule. He's 58 years old at this time. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about his early life, but I'm going to more, talk more about that next week. All right, uh, Ferrari. He worked seven days a week, 12 to 16 hours a day, holidays included. At night, he returned to Modena. That's the, the city he lives in. He travels a, short, a few short miles away to where the Ferrari factory is. Uh, he felt extremely emotionally attached to his city. Except for his daily drives to Marinello, he refused to leave Modena for almost any reason. He, was extreme, he just had one focus in life. Uh, now, the difference between, let's, let's compare and contrast, uh, Ferrari's business model with Ford. Ford makes you know, thousands of cars every few days. What does Ferrari do? Ferrari produces just a few cars each week. Uh, so who's going to pay for like, the ability to do that? Paying for it all was a rarefied group of clients who commissioned their cars as if they were pieces of art and paid Enzo Ferrari extraordinary amounts for them. So not only is Ferrari producing a very extreme product, but he also has, he's a very extreme person. Um, and I'll talk more about that, but here's an example. Like He was just really hard to figure out. He says, Ferrari was a riddle. A man who built racing cars but refused to attend races. He used to be a race car driver. Actually, that's how he got started. But uh, I'll, I'll talk about – I don't think I talk about that more in this book, but I definitely will next week. Um, so he was a man who built racing cars but refused to attend races. He worked tirelessly to perfect state-of-the-art machine, state-of-the-art machines, but he feared elevators. He also would, uh, refused to ever fly in a plane too. Um, let me talk to you about his early life here. He says, Ferrari could remember the day he was seduced by automobiles. He was 11 years old. The year was 1909. One day he rose from bed and set out across the rail tracks adjacent to his home. He hiked the two miles alone. In the countryside, the Modena Automobile Association had organized a race. It was a group of drivers who were going to attempt to break the mile speed record. Donkeys far outnumbered automobiles on Modena's streets in, in 1909. Motor cars were objects of curiosity and a chance to see how fast they could go lured a bustling crowd. Enzo took in the scene. So at a very young age, he falls in love with cars. A few years later, he's like, I know what I want to do. I want to be a race car driver. Unfortunately, World War I derailed Ferrari's ambitions. The war ravaged Italy, destroying its economy and infrastructure. Yet here's the, the positive out of that negative. And yet the war accelerated the innovation of automobiles and airplanes. The war left Ferrari penniless, his father and brother dead. He was relatively uneducated, having sat through four years of elementary school and three years of trade school, which he fail, failed out of, by the way. But he possessed a valuable talent, 
a knack for fixing things. At age 23, he joined Alfa Romeo as a test driver, mechanic, and competitor. In 1929, Ferrari founded the oh, Scuderia Ferrari, a private team that served as Alfa Romeo's racing arm. Remember, they, uh, at the beginning of the book, it talks about that these races were the greatest marketing uh, tool that the industry ever saw. This is also not new. We saw this back in the early 1900s. Henry Ford got a lot of publicity, by, even though he didn't like racing. He entered Ford cards into racing. I think he even raced one and won himself um, because he understood the, the, the value of that attention. We also saw it back in Founders number 28 when I covered the Wright brothers. Um, you know, they, people from all over the world, there'd be tens of thousands of people joining. They actually had a demonstration at Le Mans too. Uh, I think it was Wilbur Wright. It might've been Orville, but, um, you know, all these people come and they see them, these flying machines. And of course, a certain percentage of those people at these races and these events are going to want to buy, um, you know, what's being demonstrated. Uh, let's see. It said, so he's, he's founds a racing team. Uh, he won his last race in 1931. He's actually pretty good at it. Ferrari declared that he would never race again. He had a son and he devoted himself to creating a legacy that would live beyond him. So now I want to tell you about Ferrari's three principles for winning. What I would say about him is that I think he was a master at understanding human nature more than almost anything else. And so we're going to see that here. Uh, so he talks about all the stuff he learned, you know, racing and then now starting to build cars. He says, during these years, the agitator of men, as he was nicknamed, studied the psychology of winning. Certain principles were self-evident, and this is the three he came up with. Number one, competition is the impetus for innovation. The fiercer the competition, the faster the cars will go. This also played on how uh, he has a rather, um, I would say, controversial management style. And one I don't know if I'd emulate, but I'm going to tell you about it. He, uh, he believed that competition was, got the, brought the best out in people. And so what he would do is he would have multiple people in the company assigned to the same role. And he'd put people in the company, even though they're working for the same goal, against each other. Because he wanted to make them compete because he thought the results of that competition would be better. He would also have like, engaged in like, almost psychological warfare. So I don't think it would be very easy to work for him. Uh, number two, there is in some men a need to achieve greatness. This also applies to people too, generally. But he says, uh, when matched with talent, this necessity can turn humans into demigods. And number three, a man who is willing to die at the wheel is always likely to beat a man in a faster car if he can survive until the end of the race. So there's also something I need to tell you about that I didn't know before I read the book. In the 50s, 60s, it's this specific part of racing, which is called Formula One. Um, everybody dies, essentially. Uh, he's got like, he'll, he'll recruit, Ferrari recruit, let's say seven, nine drivers. Two will wind up quitting for other reasons. The other seven within a few years will all be dead. Um, I, every time in the book you introduce a new character, like, oh, why am I, who's this new character? Two paragraphs later, they're dead. I went and looked up because I was like, how is this even possible? Um, there, a few people every year during the time period we're at in the book, a few drivers, they call them pilots though, a few pilots would die. Um, eventually by the time you get to like the the 80s they've they drastically made the safe sporter to now uh the sport saver sorry um i looked it up when you have senna which is one of the most famous last formula one drivers to die he died in 94 since then since 1994 i think there was about five drivers that died there'd be five drivers that died in a year in the 50s and 60s um not only would they die but their cars would be 
they lose control of them and they go into the stands. And one time they killed like 70, I want to say 70 people watching the race. It's just, I, I, it, this is a really insane, insane time period, an insane story. Um, but it attracts very extreme personalities to the point where Ferrari is saying, you know, if you want to win, you have to be willing to die at the wheel. That, I don't want to die. <laughs> Not in that way. So, um, but this entire this entire book is is introducing us. I, I some of my my notes I love is like everybody in this book is hardcore. They're very very extreme. Okay, so um, now I want to talk to you a little bit about how Ferrari the company started racing as marketing, and then his we're gonna get into more of his personal personality and the philosophy he has to running businesses. So one of the um, drivers, the former race car drivers that survived for Ferrari is this guy named Chinetti. And he gives us this idea to Ferrari about building cars for, for the masses. Like, not for, not for the masses, but not just for racing. Uh, so it says, Chinetti was an American citizen now, and he described what he found in the New World. So he, he, he used to be living in Italy, lives in America, and I was coming back to Italy to tell Enzo all this stuff. Roads were filled with big Detroit cars, but the sports car did not exist. There was no such thing. Chinetti had an idea. Ferrari should build cars and sell them in America. It took Ferrari nearly two years to build the first car. In post-war Europe, electricity was a luxury. Fuel and manpower were in short supply. So that's part of why I, I wanted to play that quote, um, that audio from Steve Jobs talking about, like, if you're not passionate, if, if Enzo did not, he ran into so many um, like barriers and obstructions and problems that if he wasn't completely committed and completely passionate he would have given up and as a result we wouldn't have you know the creations that, that he that he that he made um fuel and manpower were in short supply all we wanted to do was build a conventional engine he later recalled right so he's saying but here's the caveat he puts on there so we want to build a conventional engine only one that would be outstanding so it's a completely high uh set of standards he has for himself and the products he's making uh, he says, the first post-war Le Mans was won by Chinetti in a Ferrari. The wind, now what happens, right? The wind triggered an instant demand for, Ferrari, for Ferrari's cars across the continent. Now, he also is, uh, this book doesn't talk about it, but his biography does. Um, that they, People that, that knew him well considered him a master at marketing. Um, the author states that he invented a lot of marketing that was... Uh, like now used in the past. I don't know if that's true. I've read like what two books on David Ogilvy by now. Um, I think a lot of the principles that Ferrari figured out, Ogilvy also figured out at a similar time. But he was definitely very gifted at it. Um, so what he would do, it, let me give an example of that. Is like even when there was a, many times his company suffering like poor financial results, and so they'd have like an abundance of inventory, right? And but they would hide the inventory because people would travel all over the world to the factory to, to meet Enzo to see the car like it was like an experience right it's not just going to like a car dealership which is kind of like a headache now and people like he'd be like Enzo I love you know people travel from like America for example They're like I want to buy a car I want to buy a car and he's like yes okay but you're gonna have to wait several months and he did that because he wanted Ferraris to be desired and if somebody traveled and he said okay here's pick out one of the six I haven't sold yet. They're not desiring it. He wanted to, and he knew by human nature, the more you wait for something, the harder it is to get, the more, the more you pay for it, the more value you're going to get out of it. It's very interesting. Uh, so it says, Ferrari fun, fun, funneled every lira or dollar into the racing campaign. Money was tight and the business model demanded that races be won. Why would a wealthy sportsman buy a Ferrari if a Jaguar had proved the finer machine on the track? 
nothing like a Ferrari had ever graced American roads. They were cars built by Italian artisans, every detail down to the steering wheel, handcrafted using some of the same method used to make Roman suits of armor and the royal carriages of the ancient kingdoms. Years later, Ferrari was asked, which of his cars was his favorite? He answered, the car which I have not yet created. And which of his victories meant the most? The ones which I have not yet achieved. So again, he's taking a completely different approach. At this time, Ford's um, factories, he's got giant factories all over the world, highly automated. Uh, they'll turn out more, more Fords in you know, 48 hours than, than, um, than Ferrari would make all year. Uh, Enzo's not taking that. He's not interested in that. They're hand-built. They're made by artisans. They take a, a, an extreme amount of time, and they sell you know, at 20 or 30 times the price of like a base-level Ford. And I think one of the important things to realize about that is if you're taking that route, like you're making a handmade product, essentially, you're not going to describe that product in boring terms because you're intimately associated with every detail of it. And so here's an example of Ferrari's level of dedication. And that's like the main point of this podcast is like, even if you're not extremely passionate about the product you're making, maybe you're passionate about the problem you're solving or the company you're building. But it's the way to describe it to the outside world that I think is is really essential. Like I find um, there's a lot of parts of Ferrari's uh, personality I don't find attractive. But one thing I'm extremely attracted to is the way he would describe and talk about why he's doing what he's doing. So check this out. When asked about the root of his mania, think about the word too, mania, that's crazy. Uh, When asked about the root of his mania, his obsession with victory, Ferrari told one reporter, everything that I have done, I did because I couldn't do anything less. One day I want to build a car that's faster than all of them. And then I want to die. And there's so many great quotes about him talking like this in the book. I I freaking love it. Uh, Here's another one. This kind of love, which I can describe in almost a sensual or sexual way within my subconscious, is probably the main reason why, for so many years, I no longer went to see my cars race. To think about them, to see them born, and to see them die. Because in a race, they are always dying, even if they win. It is unbearable. Okay, so he, we're now at the part in the story where he's winning races, but he spends all of his, the money. So basically, he, he was attracted to racing first. Then he realized, oh, I'm going to build cars as a way to fund my race team, right? And he becomes extremely passionate about the cars he's building because he's also racing them at the same time. Um, now, this is, this is important because it's going to set up the entire, like, why this book is written. I haven't even got to, like, what, where's the Ford versus Ferrari and all this? Uh, but to understand why... Ford, Henry Ford II has like this vendetta of Enzo. We have to understand what's happening with his, his, uh, Enzo's company first. So it says, Ferrari's company was struggling. He spent all of his pros- profits on racing and he was badly in need of money. He was, billing, he was being vilified at every turn. So what's happening is what I was telling you, like all his drivers are dying. And it's not just Ferraris, like all the, they all die. Like this is an insane time in, in human history that they're engaging this. He says in the newspapers, he used to be called the magician of Marinello. That's the city that his um, cars are made in. And now he's being called the monster of Marinero. One contact driver's wife called him an assassin. So he, another nickname he picks up for his whole life is an assassin because so many of his um, so many of his drivers die. And his thoughts, he's like, had he not brought an Italy another world championship, 
Had he not raised the reputation of Italian automobile into the stratosphere? So he's looking, I mean, this is, this is a kind of a hardcore person. He's like, well, you know, these deaths are unfortunate, but they're, they're necessary. And let's not focus on the individual deaths. Let's focus on, like, what it says about, they're, they're, he's extremely nationalistic, right? Um, and, and a lot of these race war, like, at the time, they're like, no, these Italians won. Oh, the Germans won. Like, they were very, almost like a miniature, like a war is playing out on the race field, right? Or the racetrack. So he said, the old man was livid. And so he came up with a plan. And this is what I mean by he's very like Machiavellian. He's a great strategist. He's just a, and to serve his goal, I don't know if you want to be like this with individual, like personal relationships. He probably not a good way to like, he almost essentially uses people to, to get what he wanted. Um, so I don't, again, like, I think if I don't, I, I, I don't think it's like, that's something you want to do with people that you could probably be successful by not doing that. But that's definitely something that we see over and over again. Like there are people that, you know, they're so, they're so focused on their goal that they're willing to do, you know, things that other people may not appreciate. And Ferrari is definitely like, we can't hide the negative parts of who he was. Like it's very apparent when you study him. So anyways, uh, he comes up with this idea, right? And he, he's like, I'm going to sell my car, my, I'm going to, so he's getting, I need to explain this to you a little bit better. He's getting vilified by his own people, right? But he's also saying, hey, I'm doing this for the pride of Italy. For, you know, he's, he loves his country. He loves his city. He loves his region. He's in. So he says, okay, you want to vilify me? I'm going to sell the best Italian car company to the Americans. So I'm going to go here and I'm going to negotiate with Ford. And let me give you the, 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 the difference between Ford and Ferrari's time. Ford, Henry Ford II, at the same time, he's doing negotiations with Ferrari. Ferrari's like, I'll let you buy my company for $18 million, right? At the same time, the Ford organization is investing $800 million to open a new um, a new factory in, in Europe. So that gives you kind of the difference of scale between the two businesses. Ford has tens of thousands. I think they have like, they might have like 300,000 employees, something, something crazy like that. Ferrari has like 200. So... This is how and why the Ford Ferrari negotiations began. If the market abroad was the future and racing victories translated into sales, the Ferrari factory could be a brilliant strategic acquisition. Iacocca got the go-ahead to explore. So you might know this name, Lee Iacocca. I read it. You know, it's, it's funny how life works, but I read his biography like 18 years ago um, because at the time... Um, I was reading, like, instead of reading books on founders, I was reading books on, like, CEOs and stuff. So I read his book, like, Jamie Dimon's book, et cetera, et cetera. Well, at this point in history, Leah Coco is just, he's like a, he's a high-paid executive in Ford. He hasn't yet had a falling out with Henry, Henry Ford II, which he will, which causes him to leave and go to Chrysler. And then he does maybe one of the greatest, one of the greatest, uh, like company turnarounds ever. So if you're interested in that, you can you can study his story. But he's the one saying, "Hey, we're going to try to go and buy um, buy Ferrari." Uh, and so now he sends over this other executive. His name's not important, but he's going to meet with Enzo Ferrari. He says, "Yes," Ferrari said. He was interested in striking a deal. He chose Ford because he was a great admirer of Henry the First. That's actually true. But he do, he does not like Henry the Second. He doesn't like Americans in general. He would sell his factory to the Americans as long as he could retain control of the racing team. He had no interest in the customer cars running that division. I mean, I never felt myself to be an industrialist, but a constructor, Ferrari told the Ford man. The production development of my firm is only of interest to me if, I can, if it is conducted by others. But be quite clear that in the construction and management of the racing cars, I want absolute autonomy. So he's setting up this deal, but he has a bunch of requests, right? 
And I, and in hindsight, I think he's setting up the request so he could, he could, this is a ruse. I need to tell you that right up front. Like he's never going to sell it to Ford. He's just wasting their time. Uh, the asking price was 18 million. I already told you that. Um, it says as negotiations moved, uh, moved about, uh, the executive reported back to Henry Ford II. Never did it occur to the Ford man that the whole deal could be, in fact, an elaborate machination, a ruse, that Enzo Ferrari may have had another agenda completely. By this time, news of the deal was public knowledge, making it headlines over the wor- all over the world. It would be the most unusual merger in automotive history. The Italian press was up in arms. It was as if they were losing a national treasure, the Ferrari automobile, to these arrogant Westerners. This pleased Ferrari. It seemed that he was not the monster of Marinero after all, but a monument to Italy. See what he was trying to do here? No Italian would ever, ever underestimate his value again. So he's reading the document. The Ford prepares this document. Okay, here's our official offer. He says, as Ferrari read the document, the Ford men saw him underlining certain passages in violent uh, in red ink. In the margin, he drew a large exclamation point. It was clear he was angry. But here, Ferrari said, holding the document, it is written that if I want to spend more money for racing, I have to request authorization to do so from America. It is also written that way in the English. Uh, is it also written that way in the official English text? Because he's reading in Italian. Where is the freedom that I demanded right from the start to make programs, select men, and decide on money? But they're like, but Mr. Ferrari, you're selling your firm to us. And you pretend to, uh, still to dispose of it at your pleasure. Ferrari's face contorted. Something uncoiled inside of him. My rights, my integrity, my very being as a manufacturer, as an entrepreneur, cannot work under this enormous machine. This suffocate, the suffocating bureaucracy of the Ford Motor Company, he shouted. Okay, so this, why, like, why am I telling you this? Why is this important? One, to give you an insight into Ferrari's personality, he did this whole thing because he, it hurt him that he was being vilified by his own people, and it's actually really smart. Like, oh, you now Ferrari is going to be American? No, no, it's our, it's our national treasure. Um, and the second thing is, when Henry Ford II hears about this, he dedicates essentially unlimited resources to beating Ferrari because Ferrari is having a lot of financial success because they were wearing, winning a bunch of races. Specifically, they're winning Le Mans, I think like four or five years in a row. I forgot how many years in a row, but a lot. And so now Ford, Henry Ford's going to say, okay, well, you know, he spends... He's gonna buy. He's gonna spend eighteen million to, to buy Ferrari's company. Now he spends like forty million dollars in a year, just developing race cars. <laughs> so that's why at the beginning of the book, they're like, "Well, the Americans thought they could they could win with all my dollar." Turns out they were correct. Now, something that comes covers in the book that I'm not going to talk at all about because uh, I want to focus on Enzo Ferrari, the person, is Ford approaches the way a big company does, and they don't have any success for like two years, and then they have to hire this entrepreneur. Carol Shelby, who built, you may have heard Shelby Cars, I actually, he's so fascinating in this book, and he's such like a misfit and a troublemaker and like a smartass that I'm immediately like attracted to, to learn more about him. So I ordered a, a book. He's eventually going to be a future um, Founders episode, but I'm not going to cover him at all. He's actually, uh, Matt Damon is going to play Carol Shelby in that new movie, and I'm going to go watch the movie next week before I record the second part of this series to see if maybe there's anything in there that I can bring back to you guys uh, that's useful. But... So uh, I'm just going to give you the basic plot of the book. We obviously know how it turns out. Uh, Ford's not successful. Eventually, he gets the right people in place, Shelby being integral to one of the people very important to that success, and eventually they're going to dethrone Ferrari 
and uh, Ferrari's going to sell his company to Fiat. So that's the basic premise of the book. But I still want to focus on what I, what like what we learned from Enzo from the book. So this is Enzo describing the process of building a product. And this goes back to like what I feel is his main attribute and one that I want to emulate is the fact that anything you're working on, like bring passion to it. Passion is universally, it doesn't matter what culture you're from, what country you're from, it's universally attractive to to other humans. And I think like you're going to be better off, all of us will be better off if we're working on something we're extremely passionate about because you can't hide passion. And it's, uh, it's understandable. Even if you don't, you know, you know what's so, so funny about passion? Like you can hear from the, the, the way, the annotation of a voice or gestures or body language, you can see it even if you don't know what they're saying. All right. Um, all right. So it says, he once described the process of building such a car. Now this is Ferrari. In the first act of his labor, the maker conceives what his creature is to be. Think about that. He calls himself a maker and he talks about what he's making a creature, like a living thing. goes back to that. He dreams of it and he sees it in detail. And he lays down the plan of work which he entrusts to a band of helpers who share his passion. A racing car, in fact, does not necessarily come into being as the creation of a superior mind, but is always the compendium of the common, unflagging, and, un- and, and, and enthralling work of a team fired by a common enthusiasm. There follows its construction, which must nearly always be done in record time, although it it never takes less than six to eight months of feverish work. The next stage is the assembly of the car and its testing, which is the most delicate, the most engrossing, and the the most dramatic phrase. So halfway through that paragraph, you forget that he's talking about a car. He has to bring it back around in the last sentence or two. He's actually talking about a car. And what's also interesting to me, the more I learn about him, is that he only opens up about the, his creation, about the product that he's making, the company that he's making. So here's more about his personality. A confidant once described the old man's temperament as closed, like a walnut. Ferrari had created a Shakespearean world where intrigue was always brewing, and men sometimes paid for mistakes with their lives. He talks about uh, he, he would like hide. He would always wear glasses. He would... He essentially would not let people inside. He wanted to have. He wanted to collect information, not give information. Right. So, so this is. Uh, he wrote his memoirs. This is a quote from his memoirs. He talks. He says the facial expression, a smile or a frown or whatever it might be, is merely a form of defense and should be taken only as such. A very little sneaky little dude, man. Now there is one thing in the book that has nothing to do. Well, it has something to do with Ferrari, but it's not Ferrari specifically. So if you're going back to the movie, Christian Bale in the movie. Is going to play this guy named Les Miles. Les Miles, like Carol Shelby's like right-hand man. So let me give some background. Ford was having a lot of, uh, not having any success trying to beat um, Ferrari for several years. They were running everything by committee. Even though all this is happening in Europe, all the, the decisions would have to be approved back at Ford's headquarters in Michigan. And it was just like a, it was terrible. It was a, it was a typical like big company way of doing things. And so this part, what I'm going to route to read to you is, Les Miles, which is the character Christian Bale plays, about what changed and why the fact that Ford eventually handled, gives Shelby saying, hey, you're now in charge. You make all the decisions. And Shelby's not in Detroit. He's in this, he has a tiny little company in Venice, California with a band of misfits. Les Miles is definitely one of these misfits. Carol Shelby, if you hear him talk, he's definitely a misfit. So the reason I bring this up is because this is the advantage that founder-led companies have over larger, you know, a company that has the committee structure. It's just not led by this person that created it anymore. Um, and so Christian, what Christian, what Christian Bale is telling us, what Les Miles is telling us, right? Uh, he's telling us that he can finally do what, well, let me read it to you first, okay? 
Um, so he says, we have several advantages over other people who have played with the car, meaning the car they're trying to be Ferrari with. Miles told a reporter, we can react to a suggestion. We can do something right now. We don't have to go through elaborate procedures of putting through formal design changes. If we decide we don't like something, we can take a hacksaw and cut it off. Practically everything we do is a panic operation, but if anyone can do it, we can. So what essentially Les Miles, we're going to call him Christian Bale, is telling us is that they, the people competing with Ferrari, can finally what can finally do what Ferrari could be do could have could do the whole time. Like Ferrari didn't. He was a a dictator of his company. He didn't have to ask for permission. He made a decision and it happened right away as opposed to the Ford racing team. It's just like, oh, we got to get it cleared through three levels of management. There's got to be a meeting. Like they describe some of the meetings these people have. It's hilarious to me. So I would know we can't make a decision. We got to get 25 people. Okay. We'll meet two Thursdays from now at this hotel and we'll meet, there'll be 25 people meeting for six hours and then we'll make a decision. I was like, that's, that's absurd. And the reason um, I bring this up is because one, it's obviously an advantage that we see over and over and over again in these biographies. The founder-led companies just don't have to deal with this. You know, you, it's very clear who, is, who, who, who the final decision rests with. It also reminds me of a scene that happened several times in that book. I did a podcast on the book uh, called The Creative Selection. And it was one of the designers and uh, uh, one of the programmers working at Apple when they were designing the, um, he worked on the keyboard for the original iPhone and then also the iPad. And he would describe how decisions were make, made in Apple when Steve Jobs was alive. And it's completely opposite of what one might expect. He'd have, your responsibility was to demo. Steve would want to see what you did work. He'd want to touch it and see it working. And then in a few minutes, he'd make a decision. So like making a decision on the keyboard of, you know, the most important product ever made. It, it happened in like a matter of a, a few days. I think maybe it was like, two or three demos. I can't remember exactly how much, but you're talking about a few handful of minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. And that's it because Steve knew exactly what he wanted. And when he saw it in real life, he said, okay, that's where we're going. And that's it. There was no, oh, let me go talk to the board of directors. Let me go talk to this person. It's done. And so that this change that Ford made is a reason why they were eventually, they, they wind up beating Ferrari, you know, after once they beat him once, they beat him several years in a row. And then, um, than Honda and other, you know, other countries start coming in and winning. But I think that's extremely important. All right, so uh, more about Ferrari. This is Ferrari who's asked on if he has a social life. No, none. Laugh, life passes soon enough. If you want to do one thing well, you have to work at it fast. A Ferrari may not be a masterpiece in exactly the same way that a great work or, or, of painting or sculpture is but it represents the work of many men bringing to life the ideas of Ferrari. Again, you know, one, we see two things there. One, he has complete dedication to this. He doesn't really think about anything else. And two, he's again, describing his product, his products. Like he, he's like, oh, it may not be a masterpiece of, of uh, like a painting or a sculpture, but he, he's putting that into your mind as he talks. Okay, now I think of I think of a painting or a great sculpture, and now I think of Ferrari too. He just, the way he describes his products is amazing. So I want to tell you about this random quote because it's been on my mind lately too. Um, there's a quote, just it, it's a um, a writer's interviewing a famous bullfighter, right? Bullfighters are very similar to uh, race car pilots at the time. You know, you'd be seriously injured if you're not if you like you you have a dangerous occupation. And so he's interviewing this bullfighter and he says something to him. The writer says, "You're the most completely egotistical bastard I've ever met." His response is what I want to tell you that I find interesting. 
He says, you don't understand. When I go in there, if I don't really and truly believe I'm the best in the world, I had better not go in at all. So in a lot of the notes that I've been taking, I've been trying to find the parallels for entrepreneurs that you see in other domains, whether it's scientists, but especially like athletes, musicians, other artists, craftsmen like this. This is something that like, it's hard to talk about, but I think the people that I think the people that feel that they're the best in the world at what they're doing, like, let's go, let's use the example I've used many times in this, in this podcast so far. Like, I'm pretty sure Steve Jobs thought he was the best in the world at making devices, making computers. I'm, I'm, I'm positive that he thought he was the best in the world at it. I think there's some, like, it's not sure if you talk to athletes about this, they're going to tell you that you don't become the best in the world and then think you're the best in the world. That's not the order it happens. The order it happens is I think I can be the best in the world at it and I'm going to work really hard at it and then I'm going to. It's the reverse order that most people think. Most people think, oh, you had the success. Now you can, you know, strut a little bit or, or maybe talk about like, you know, like the fact that you worked really hard. Now you're the best in the world. They're saying, no, no, no. You need to have that belief going in. And I think Steve Jobs had that belief. I think Enzo Ferrari definitely believed he was building the best cars in the world. And I, my point here is like, even if... Like, even if there's no reason for you to believe that yet, it's probably beneficial for, for your belief in, in your potential to get there, whatever it is. And now in business, it's a lot different than a sport, than like a, 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 a car race or a basketball game, for example, like, cause those are zero sum events. Like there's one win, there's one champion every year. There's like, and you know, 50 or 100 losers or however many people in the, uh, racing. In basketball, it's, you know, 29 other losers, whatever the case is. Business, the reason I think is entrepreneurs should take, take this is because, like, there's no, it's it's all positive sum. Like, there's very, there, I mean, there obviously some industries where there's one or two winners or whatever the case is, winner take all. But, like, for the vast majority, like, we can carve out these little tiny niches where we can be the best. And, like, you can have that belief and then you could find a customer base that also believes that. And if you have that belief and then you have customers that also agree with your belief, then you have a successful business, whatever size that may be. So I don't know like the best way to describe this. I just think that this is something I see over and over again. And there's something there in our psyche that I think is beneficial if you can harness that. And I've talked about this before where I, th- I feel like why are we at a, in the United States, like at a, we're at a 40 year low to new business creation, entrepreneurship's at a, you know, 40 year low. Like you have, one thing, like, before you can have a successful company, like, you have to believe that you can have a successful company. I think most people think it's way too difficult. And something that, if you listen to this podcast enough, you read between the lines is, any, anybody can learn this. It's not like you have to go to school and get a certificate or a license to be an entrepreneur. You got people like Enzo Ferrari. He failed out of everything. He's got, like, essentially an elementary school education and created one of the most valuable companies and valuable products ever. Like, and you don't, ha- you don't have to be good at life. You just be good at one specific thing and do it really, really well. Go back a couple years, uh, a couple years ago, a couple weeks ago. And I was thinking about Jim Clayton the other day. Like Jim Clayton had an amazing life, sold his business for almost $2 billion to Warren Buffett. What did he get really good at? He got really good at building a mobile home company. And guess what? If you get really good at anything like that, then you can have, you'll, you'll build wealth beyond that you could spend in a lifetime and you'll have a really interesting life. But like, there's no, there's no school you could go to like, Hey, teach me how to build the most valuable mobile home manufacturer in the world. Like, but life can teach you that. And like, I don't know. I think that's so, um, 
that's why I think entrepreneurship is one of the most interesting things in the world in general, because I'm always constantly surprised all these unique ways people find uh, products they make and ways to support their family. And then the fact that like it's wide open and available to everybody, not everybody can be a doctor. You got to go through a certain, you know, track to do so. Not everybody can be all a million different occupations, but literally anybody could be an entrepreneur. So um, I don't know. I, I think um, I think tied to the fact that anybody can do it is people have to believe they have the ability to do it. And I don't know how to solve that problem other than showing you example after example after example of people that come from almost nothing. Think about Jim Clayton. He you know didn't have a bathroom, didn't have electricity. They 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 could take a bath. There's four people in his family. They could take a bath once a week using the same water. Like that person, that guy had no um, advantages in life. And yet he was ultimately resourceful and, and built it up over time to, to build, you know, he built multiple um, valuable businesses. Actually, he built a really profitable car dealership. He built Clayton Homes. He wound up building, uh, building like a little banking empire. So um, I don't know, man. I just, it, it, I'm sure there's somebody listening to this that, that doesn't think they could do it. And you can. If you really think about it and you you won't give up and you find something you're passionate about, you absolutely can. Okay. Um, we're almost to the end of what I want to talk about in this book. You know the general plot of the book. And obviously, um, you know, if, the book is it's a, it's a really interesting and, and fun read. But I, I want to pull out uh, just a few more things here to share with you. So one thing is I realize is uh, Ferrari is out here playing chess. And everybody, everybody's going against is is playing checkers and um we're gonna get to the point i'm right before he, he's been beating ford has 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 declared war on him for a few years but is unsuccessful and but ford's right is progressing every every year and I, ferrari knows he's about to lose and so what ferrari does here is what i mean by he's out here playing chess when everybody else is playing checkers so he said both he enzo and henry ii lived and breathed their companies Ferrari has no other satisfaction and has no other satisfaction. His family, his very life is that creature of his, La Ferrari. That's one of his uh, people, this guy named Jono, who um, was one of his best engineers that worked uh, for a long time describing Ferrari. He said, Ferrari had an acute talent for using public opinion to his advantage. He was a master of manipulation and subterfuge. Remember, I was referencing this earlier. And in this new era of mass media, he would put his skills to work. He published an article in the Italian magazine accepting defeat before the race began, knowing that this bit of gossip would get picked up by the international newspapers. Now, this is what Ferrari wrote. We know that nothing is being done to resist the steamroller of the Americans. Remember, he's writing this in an Italian magazine. That's important to understand. Um, To resist the steamroller of the Americans, who will find the road open to success in sports car racing. We fought on the track with autos and at the table against the abuses of power in the regulations. Even while continually winning races, I understood that we were gradually losing them. We intensified our activity to the utmost, but we, were managed, but we managed simply to slow down the approach of the steamroller. The battle was lost in advance. So what's happening here? It says Ferrari was willingly casting himself as an underdog. Ford was Goliath and he was David. If he lost, well, he had predicted defeat. Henry, Henry II had done nothing but buy Le Mans with his countless millions. And if Ferrari won, as he absolutely intended to, well, in a lifetime destined by tragedy and victory, perhaps he would achieve his greatest moments. 
So that's the year, 1966. Ferrari does indeed lose, but he comes. He doesn't come out of it that much worse for wear. Um, Ford winds up winning. Their their business in, in Europe grows, even at a time in America that it's uh, slowly declining at this point. But Ferrari sells 50% of his business to an Italian company, which he would never have sold it to anybody else. He sells it to Fiat. And then when he dies, uh, that, that ownership goes up to 90%. The other 10% goes up to his one surviving son because he had one son that died and then he had another son from a mistress. And that son, still, I think still to this day, owns 10% of Ferrari. But in the end, Ferrari gets what he wants. He has the financial stability of a larger company, still able to make decisions in racing, and has a safe home for you know his passion and his creation. He still runs the company until he dies. All right, so that's the end of the story about Ford and Ferrari. I want to talk about one more thing before I wrap up this story. Um, and this is what I said earlier when I, when I left a note that everybody in this book is hardcore. And um, it's just an amazing quote by this guy named Bruce McLaren. So Bruce McLaren, he plays a role. He, he runs up being a race car driver for Ford. He eventually uh, starts his own racing team, and he founds McLaren Automotive. And he does all of this before 32 years old when he dies. And he dies racing because that was his passion in life. So I just want to read this quote to you. Said McLaren might have known he would die some he would someday die at the wheel. He had just published an autobiography in which he had written his own epitaph. So think about the thought process there. You're, you're like, who's going to write an autobiography when they're 28 or 30 years old? And now this is a quote from from McLaren. To do something well is so worthwhile that to die trying to do it better cannot be foolhardy. It would be a waste of life to do nothing nothing with one's ability. For I feel that life is measured in achievement, not in years alone. So I just want to encourage you to obviously not to die for, for whatever you're doing. That's that's way too extreme. But I like that that thought that he says. Um, trying to do better, uh, it'd be a waste of life. Especially, it would be a waste of life to do nothing with one's abilities. And I think in the domain of entrepreneurship, everybody has some way that they can contribute. Some large, some small. But the idea of, of creating something and then over time making it better, um, I think that's a worthy way to, to spend your life. So I'll close the, the story here. If you want to read the entire book, um, or if you, want, excuse me, if you want the full story, read the book. It is extremely uh, fun read. I probably go see the movie too. It's, it's going to be fascinating. But um, anyways, I leave a link in the show notes on your podcast player. If you, if you purchase the book uh, using that, that link... Amazon sends me a small percentage of the sale, sale at no additional cost to you. If you want to see every single book that I've done, uh, go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash founders podcast, and you'll see it's like a visual representation of the podcast in reverse chronological order. So it's kind of cool seeing all the different um, stories that, that we've covered so far. And of course, you can go to founderspodcast.com and you'll see the books there. You can sign up uh, and you see every, everything I have is at founderspodcast.com. Uh, one thing I need to ask of you before I go, if you're enjoying the work that I'm doing and you're enjoying the podcast that you're listening to, please do me a favor this week, tell one, at least one friend about Founders Podcast, somebody you know that'd be interested in, in these stories, uh, text it to them, text them maybe the link to the website or, or a specific episode, uh, anything you could do to help spread the word, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening and I will talk to you next week.